Welcome everyone to SIUC's Rural Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we're doing a roundtable discussion on COP26. This is proving to be a critical year for climate change on the news agenda, with everything from flooding to wildfires and rapidly rising temperatures dominating the headlines. Scotland has seen Nicola Sturgeon's declaration of the climate emergency in April 2019, and the Scottish Government's newly published Programme for Government 2021-22. This programme talks about putting net zero at the heart of Scotland's economic prosperity and ending Scotland's contribution to climate change in a just and fair way. Today we have a panel packed with experts covering a broad range of areas, each of whom is going to comment on the main priorities that they would like to see coming out of COP26 and why, based on their own expertise. From how farms can adapt to managing soils, the climate environment impacting food systems, through to our own research centre tackling climate change, we've got it covered. Agriculture and land use is key to solving certain climate change issues, and Bob Rees has been doing fascinating work around nitrogen use. Bob, tell us more. Thanks, John. So, as you say, we're facing a climate emergency. But one of the issues that's often hidden from this debate is the importance of agriculture's response. Agriculture and land use release about 25% of greenhouse gases that are produced in Scotland and are responsible for similar proportions on a worldwide basis. So the approaches that we take to producing and consuming food have a major effect on our climate. And one of the issues that's really important here is our use of nitrogen fertilisers to support the food that we grow. Nitrogen is an element that's essential for life. We use about 120 million tonnes of nitrogen fertilisers every year to support global food production. And yet nitrogen has a dark side. More than 90% of the fertiliser nitrogen that we manufacture is lost to the environment where it pollutes our air, soil and water. And one of the gases that's released from nitrogen fertilisers when it's applied to soils is called nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas that has about 300 times more warming potential than carbon dioxide and makes up a large part of agriculture's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. So at SIUC, we've been undertaking research in the UK and internationally to reduce nitrogen's impact on the environment whilst maintaining productivity and profitability in farming. And there are four approaches that we can take to tackling this. Firstly, we can improve the efficiency with which fertilisers are used. Our research has shown that the right amount of fertiliser at the right time has a big impact on how efficiently fertilisers are taken up by plants. And the recommendations that we publish reflect the importance of this careful nitrogen management. Secondly, we can substitute fertilisers for alternative inputs. There are plant-based inputs of nitrogen that we can use in the form of legumes, which provide a natural input of nitrogen to agriculture and can substitute for some of the synthetic fertilisers that we use. Thirdly, we can use different technological approaches, such as inhibitors and precision management. These are tools that are still very much under development, but will become increasingly important uh, in the way that we approach and manage our farmland. And then finally, there's consumer choice. Consumers, of course, have a big impact on what's grown on farms. And therefore, we need consumers to help shape the direction of change by choosing food products with low carbon and nitrogen footprints. 
So tackling the nitrogen problem is really important from the perspective of mitigating greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. But there's also wider environmental benefits, reducing pollution of our air, soil and water. And this in turn will have benefits in terms of reducing biodiversity loss and increasing the environmental quality of our wider environment. So I'll finish there and hand back to you, John. Thanks, Bob. And speaking of fertilisers and nitrogen, soil is a major area of concern. Peter Lindsay from SIUC's consulting arm is heavily involved with farmers and soil regeneration work. So Peter, over to you. Thanks, John. Yeah, I've been working with Farming for a Better Climate with a group of five farmers on a, what we call a soil regenerative farming approach, uh, where we've been looking at all aspects of this. Uh, firstly, focusing on, on soil health, uh, where the, the, the five key uh, points of, of regenerative farming is one, do not disturb the soil. So anything to reduce um, soil disturbance, reducing cultivations, etc., cetera, uh, can help with the soil. Uh, armor the soil, keep the soil covered, whether that's by stubble, um, chopped straw, uh, or green materials um, to prevent from rain splash and causing erosion, etc. cetera. Uh, keep living roots in the soils at all times, whether that's the actively cash crop that you're growing or green cover crops in between crops, uh, cash crops. Uh, increase crop diversity, um, generally by introducing additional crops uh, and species into the rotation, but also again, um, using the green covers to add other uh, varieties or species into the rotation that wouldn't necessarily be grown as a cash crop. And the fifth one is uh, grazing animals on the land. Uh, so we're actually looking at on some of the all arable farms is actually grazing livestock on the, the, the cash crop, uh, just to give it a light graze to introduce the biology onto the soil. But more directly looking at the fertilizer on the end use, uh, we're using precision applications, moving often to the use of liquid nitrogen so that we've got the application uh, using a sprayer to allow for even application across the entire width of the field. Looking at leaf tissue testing for nitrogen to adjust the rates accordingly to what the, the plant requires. Um, using GPS soil analysis just to get um, pH levels optimal across the field to increase and maximize the N efficiency uh, of what we are actually applying to the field. Uh, making use of the organic materials available, uh, so not just disposing of them, but actually making use of the nutrients in, in farmyard manures and digestates, and using technology now um, for the application of digestates and slurries in a measured approach, uh, rather than just applying tanker loads per, per hectare. And then we're also doing some research looking in at supplying nitrogen via foliar feed through the leaves rather than through the roots, as it's thought that this can be more efficient uh, and we can end up using less nitrogen overall to provide the same uh, benefits to the plants. And then also the use of the green cover crops to hold any residual nitrogen that's left over from the cash crop, hold that in place until the next cash crop goes in the ground uh, and they can make use of that. On the livestock side of things for maximizing growth rates tends to be the, the best way of minimizing the, the nitrogen use. 
whether that's through basics such as analyzing silage and, and rationing, producing livestock rations accordingly, providing better quality forages, um, using red clovers to produce silage with no um, artificial nitrogen, um, and other basics such as providing creep feed for calves, calving cows down at the age of two instead of three to reduce the numbers of unproductive animals being carried around the farm, and using um, genetic improvement via EBVs and things like that to select naturally for animals with the highest growth rates. So there's many various options that we can look at and we are looking at no two farms are the same so everybody's looking at slightly different options um, but there's certainly a, a lot of this is farmer driven um, by the farming for a better climate uh, groups and farmer led and we think farmers can come up with the uh, the answers. Back to you, John. Thank you, Peter. Soil is essential for food production, obviously, uh, and Mads Fisher-Muller is a food systems expert here at SIUC. Uh, with recent food shortages hitting the headlines due to various factors, this is a tangible issue for most people, isn't it, Mads? Yeah, it's correct that we've seen food shortage. We've seen perhaps more discussion around food and our food system than than ever before in these past 18 months. And that's, of course, been because Brexit, COVID have really had an impact and showed that our food system, food, getting food on our tables is not as easy as it's always been. There is a very intricate system lying behind <laughs> us getting Hobie's bread for our, our lunch. And um, we can also see in the recent uh, Climate Assembly report where 100 uh, Scottish citizens were gathered to talk about how they wanted to change Scotland in order to reach our climate targets. We can see, for instance, farming and agriculture is mentioned maybe a handful of times, but food is mentioned almost 90 times. So food is a way to include more people into the discussion of climate change and how they can actually contribute themselves to change, uh, to, to mitigate climate change. Uh, from a research perspective, changing food consumption is perhaps the most efficient way of mitigating the worst effects of climate change. When we're looking at, for instance, the proposed farm policies in the Scottish government at the moment, well, if we implement all the uh, new policies to make our soccer beef herd more efficient and pour a lot of government resources into that, we will see that soccer beef can get maybe 40 to 45% more efficient if everything is implemented. But if you then compare, what can I do? Well, if I choose to eat falafel instead of a tenderloin, well, falafel has a CO2 equivalent of two kilos per kilo falafel, whereas tenderloin has 150. So it's 75 times more climate efficient to eat falafel. So I can eat healthier, I can eat cheaper, and I can save the world. I can eat falafel 75 times before I reach the same carbon emissions than if I was to eat tenderloin. So in that regard, changing our diet and changing our food system 
there's a very, very potent way of mitigate, mitigating climate change. And that's also increasingly recognized both internationally and here in Scotland and the UK. Just the recent uh, National Food Strategy for England proposes that we need to change our diet. And that's one of the key components. We simply cannot mitigate climate change fast enough if we don't change our diets. But we cannot put this on the consumer. Because consumers, well, we eat not only to preserve the planet and be healthy. If, if we were to eat rationally, we would all eat cabbage all day long, and we don't. And we can't expect people to do that. And quite frankly, life would probably be a bit more boring. So what we want to see in the food system is a systems transformation where it gets easier, where the healthy and sustainable choices are also made the easy choices. And we, the, crucially is that the political system starts recognizing that dietary change is part of the climate solution. And in, also crucially is that the business community starts seeing that we, pro, we can make money from producing something else that we produce today. We don't, Scotland isn't destined to just uh, produce beef, dairy, whiskey, salmon. Scotland could also produce way more fruits, vegetables, pulses. And for instance, we have, I think, around six times more acreage of golf courses than we do have orchards. Horticulture is one of the most profitable businesses in the Scottish agricultural system, but only adds up a, a fraction of a percentage of the Scottish land use. So there is, if we start changing what we produce and changing what we eat, we can have huge positive climate impact. And there are definitely good reasons for this not being the easiest or the first solution that politicians think of, because it really takes a lot for this kind of systematic change towards changing diet, towards completely altering what we're eating to be implemented. But it's doable. Uh, what I've, I've, I come from a, a background as a, a civil servant in Denmark. And what we've seen in the Danish context is that 15 years ago, Denmark was very much a, an agricultural country based around meat, dairy, uh, and, and fishery, a lot of animal-based protein. And we have been exporting that and making good money from that for generations. Uh, but in the past 10 to 15 years, the vision of what does a future food system look like is really starting to change in Denmark. So the big businesses are readjusting their strategies. The biggest dairy, the biggest slaughterhouses, they invest heavily in plant-forward diets. Not to say that they don't want to produce milk or not want to produce uh, meat anymore, but they can just see that if they are to meet climate change targets or climate mitigation targets, they need to diversify their portfolio of products. And quite frankly, it's also because they can see that's where the future markets are. In Here in Scotland or in UK, one in three young people say that they are flexitarian, vegan or vegetarian. So in the future, 
we also need our food businesses to produce food that seems relevant for the future population. So hopefully with the right kind of, of policy push with a good food nation bill that takes into account the fact that, that diet is dietary change is part of the solution towards climate change. With the right kind of policy mechanisms with some change in the in the mindset of the agricultural business and with some horizon scanning, see what, what other countries are doing and how they are starting to think differently about what will the future diet of the world look like, then maybe also Scotland can be a bit more bold when it comes to thinking about what products we are to produce for consumers going forward. So I do believe that food has a crucial role to play in mitigating climate change, not just agricultural policy, but also figuring out how to change the way we see food all the way from what we serve in schools to what uh, to marketing rules towards supporting all the cool new businesses that have a ton of new ideas that can be uh, among the ones uh, ch changing the diets for the future. Next up is Stephen Thompson. Stephen is an agricultural economist with SIUC and is going to cover future land use and policy design. Thanks, John. Um, and I suppose uh, I've been involved in uh, various different working groups, uh, be they through the farmer-led groups that the government had set up um, to inform future policy decisions, and also the Independent Farming for 1.5 Degrees uh, panel, which was looking at the, the issue of climate change and, and future policy and how to stimulate change within the industry. And from a from a policy perspective, the Scottish government had a, a, a commitment to a period of policy stability and simplicity, um, and that technically runs up until 2024. Um, and at the outset, we heard from uh, Bob Rees saying that we are in a climate emergency, and I think everybody out now acknowledges that, recognises that, and the industry itself is now recognising that, um, and simply want to. To, to make the first step onto this journey towards uh, a more climate-friendly uh, Scottish agriculture. Um, and until we take that first step uh, onto the journey, we probably don't know which of the pathways, we don't know fully the pathways that we're going to take. Uh, and we know what the end result has to be is, is a, a much more climate-friendly uh, agriculture and land use sector. And, and when I talk about agriculture and land use sector, uh, I think it's important for listeners to understand that uh, from, a, from a climate change perspective, there is a, a, an inventory, it's done on sectors, um, and agriculture strangely is split, split into two different sectors. It's split into an agriculture sector and a land use, land use change and forestry sector. Um, so it is a slightly complex thing when you talk to farmers about their their the emissions reductions that they need to do because they're impacted on both sectors and the other thing is farmers create renewable energy through wind fart wind turbines or through solar panels and these things aren't accounted for in the farm Within the Scottish government legislation, there's a, an emissions target legislation. Um, there's a there's a, a a commitment in there to look at farms and agricultural units in their in their totality, um, and we need to put, we need to progress this so that we can actually better understand the 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 net contribution or uh, the, the the net um, effect 
of agriculture on climate change. Uh, so that means looking at farms holistically in terms of their land use, in terms of their production, and also in terms of their, their renewable energy generation. Now that is done if you're doing a carbon calculator or a carbon footprint on your farm. Uh, those, those things tend to be accounted for. So um, from a government's perspective, it doesn't quite work out uh, in line with what's happening in the private sector. And does that matter? Well, if you are if you are selling carbon in a, a carbon credits from woodland uh, or peatland restoration uh, to investors or people that are trying to offset uh, in the private market, so if you're eventually selling product to retailers, you don't have those carbon credits anymore associated with you. Somebody else has them, so then your carbon footprint may be higher than you actually think it is. From a government's perspective, it doesn't matter who pays for it and who owns the, these credits. Uh, it simply means that they're meeting their, their their targets. And until we start joining this up and better understanding for individual farms what their actual position is, we don't know what the starting point of this journey is. So getting baseline data is is one of the key aspects of the the, the government uh, the government's uh, policy journey getting an understanding of what's currently happening on farms. Now, both Pete and Bob talked about uh, the, the use of, uh, or, or the use of nutrients, uh, the use of, or the, the, the requirement to be much more efficient. And the, the future policy uh, tools need to start thinking about how do we actually account for carbon efficiency in our policy signals? So are we going to start seeing a set of, uh, support mechanisms that actually account for how carbon neutral or how carbon efficient you are and that should also account for biodiversity as well because we're also in a biodiversity crisis and and Davy McCracken will talk about more that a bit more now if we don't do this then if we don't have the policy signals then we're leaving this entirely up to the marketplace uh, and the marketplace is uh, full of imperfect imperfections, and that will mean that the 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 speed of change probably isn't as rapid as required to meet the Scottish government's commitments. The sector is in for a, a a change, a significant change in terms of its policy and how it operates, if we are to meet these climate change targets. And setting out what the policy, the government's policy commitments are, is going to be vital. That's slightly challenging just now because at a UK level, since we've come out of the European Union, we do not have an overarching framework uh, across the United Kingdom that's agreed. So we do not know what, what um, types of support mechanism we can have in Scotland. England are already rapidly evolving their policies, their agricultural policies are away from an area-based basic support payment towards more environmental payments. Um, and it's vital that we actually get the, the pieces of the jigsaw in place at a policy level uh, so that we can start rapidly making decisions in Scotland. Scottish Government have a commitment to, uh, uh, to, to put, in, put before Parliament new agricultural policy by 2023. So the draft legislation will go in there. Uh, they've also made a commitment that by 2024, half of all agricultural support payments will be will be conditional, will have increased conditions on them. And that may mean uh, more conditions based on uh, climate change, i.e. greenhouse gas emissions and your technical efficiency, but also on biodiversity. And I'll 
pass back to you just now, John. And speaking of farms, we now turn to David McCracken. Davey is our Head of Integrated Land Management and knows a thing or two about farms. Davey, why do you think farmer and land, farmers and land managers should be closely watching what happens at COP26? Um, well, COP26, as, as we all know, is focused particularly on the climate emergency. Um, but I would be um, also highlighting that um, we've been in a biodiversity crisis for even longer um, than we've recognised the actual climate emergency. Um, and from farmers, land managers of all, of all types across Scotland, then clearly um, what happens on our land is going to be essential um, going forward um, to address both those sort of twin crises. Um, uh, and uh, as uh, has already been indicated, that will mean that farming and farm management practices will have to change. Um, and uh, the important thing to emphasise um, from the biodiversity perspective is that <coughs> Um, while we can actually make changes and, and are talking about making changes um, to actually help um, adapt and, and mitigate to the, the sort of climate issues that we're seeing in Scotland and, and we'll see more of, then it's only some of those um, only some of those um, actions on the ground, those changes on the ground, will also be of benefit from a biodiversity perspective. So um, all farmers and land managers need to be aware that um, we, we clearly have a climate change imperative, but we also have a biodiversity imperative as well. And we need to be careful that we don't get into a situation where um, one is uh, dictating changes um, on the ground um, to benefit climate, for example, while at the same time uh, the additional benefits that could be achieved from a biodiversity perspective um, are actually forgotten. Um, I think the, the, the additional thing to highlight from a farm farm and a farm management perspective or a wider land management perspective is um, we are not, or certainly I'm not talking about uh, addressing climate change um, or biodiversity measures by actually stopping farming. It's about changing farming practices, integrating different elements of practices onto the farms in order to get benefits from, from both a climate and a biodiversity perspective. And appearing at COP26 this year will be our very own Mark Reed, who will be talking about soils also. Mark, what's going to be on the agenda for you at COP26? Yes, John, uh, looking forward to it. Um, let me tell you a little bit more about the roles that I play so you can understand the role I'll be playing at the, the conference. So I'm a professor of rural entrepreneurship uh, here at SRUC, and I'm also leading the Thriving Natural Capital Challenge Centre. Uh, but I also uh, have a couple of other hats. Uh, I'm research lead for the IUCN, that's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's UK Peatland Programme, uh, and I'm co-chair of the research working group for the United Nations Peatlands, uh, Global, Global Peatlands Initiative. Uh, and uh, with those hats on, I'm part of the uh, organising panel for the Peatland Pavilion in the Blue Zone app at COP26. Now, the reason we've got an entire pavilion devoted to peatlands is because peatlands are such an important nature-based solution to climate change. Uh, peatlands, if you're not aware, are one of the world's largest carbon stores, uh, far more uh, in our peat soils internationally than in all of the world's vegetation combined. 
But when it's in bad condition, so burned, drained, etc., it emits huge amounts of greenhouse gases, uh, around 5% of the global carbon budget, in fact. So a big challenge that we need to address. And when we do address that, we not only reduce greenhouse gases, but we get benefits for biodiversity, water quality, flood risk alleviation, and so on and so forth. Uh, so at the pavilion, we're going to have a, a range of actors from around the world uh, talking uh, about and trying to influence negoti negotiations around the role of peatlands. Um, I'll be leading one session um, based on a paper that I'm leading that uh, will be published as a preprint uh, before the conference uh, on what uh, governments who are uh, who are monitoring peatlands and researchers can do to standardise uh, the kinds of data that they collect so that we can synthesise that to do more evidence-based policy and practice. Uh, huge problems at the moment, even understanding uh, where our peatlands are, what condition they're in, let alone how they might be changing because of the way that we're collecting data. And uh, we need a much stronger baseline, a uh, much more effective uh, evidence base for uh, peatland policy internationally. And that's what that session is trying to do. But I'll also be contributing to sessions uh, around peatland carbon markets uh, and the blending of private and public sources of funding. Um, and this talks to a wider issue, which is going to be perhaps the most contentious issue at COP26, which is Article 6. Uh, the negotiators failed to reach agreement on this uh, last time round. It's been pushed forward now into this conference of the parties. Uh, and this is uh, all around the role that private investments, uh, carbon finance and the like, uh, can, should or shouldn't play uh, in enabling us to meet our goals under the Paris Agreement. Hugely contentious. Uh, on a moral basis, some people argue, well, uh, we simply uh, shouldn't be allowing private sector investment in this full stop. Uh, we certainly shouldn't be allowing that in things like carbon sequestration and offsetting. Uh, we should be focusing on emissions at source, reducing emissions at source. And of course, uh, that has to be our, our key focus. Uh, but given the scale of the challenge, I and many others believe that sequestration uh, can and should be part of the solution. Uh, and given uh, the speed with which we need to move and the amount of funding that could be available from the private sector if we design these markets right, uh, that could in fact dwarf the amount of money available through the public sector, uh, I think that it is important to think about how we might be able to harness that. But of course, the key challenge is to do that in a way which is responsible uh, and that doesn't lead to negative unintended consequences, double counting and the like. So getting the governance of this is crucial. And what's quite interesting is that the UK is uh, among a, a small number of countries that are really leading in this agenda. Um, so we have two national carbon markets, the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code. Uh, I was one of the original architects of the Peatland Code and I sit on its executive board. Um, and we're now developing a range of other carbon markets for other habitats and land uses across the UK. And the key thing about these is that these are standards that provide guarantees to both the investors, the buyers, and to the sellers, often farmers, uh, to make sure that this is done in a responsible way uh, that is good for the climate, uh, it's good for uh, other ecosystem services, for local communities, uh, and so on and so forth. We need to try and make sure that this is done in as holistic a way as possible, and it's not just, well, let's just plant conifers over all of our landscapes and, um, and, and stuff the rest, because climate is so important. So um, 
In the UK, we've got uh, some some very robust standards um, that are directing uh, private investment into habitat restoration and uh, uh, and trying to get these these co benefits uh, where possible. Uh, that's one side of it, but of course the other challenge and one of the things that the negotiators are trying to get their head around is uh, how we blend and combine both public and private sources and get these two to work together effectively. Uh, so in an ideal world, what we're trying to do is to harness uh, the power of the private sector's capital uh, to invest in as much of this as possible where we can do you know, the heavy lifting. <clears throat> Uh, and then to enable the public sector to, uh, to to fill the gaps where there would naturally be a market failure, where investors wouldn't naturally want to uh, to put their money. Uh, combined, uh, I think that this does have the potential, and in Scotland in particular, based uh, on the Peatland Code, uh, we are leading the way in terms of a range of different blending mechanisms that can enable uh, the public sector to do those kind of gap-filling jobs um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and address market failures while we allow the, the private sector to do that heavy lifting. So a lot that we can learn from the UK, but of course a lot that we can learn here from others around the world. And I think that's what excites me most about this pavilion uh, that we're leading uh, and the negotiations and just the collaboration and knowledge exchange that happens at events like this. Uh, hugely important issues, uh, loads of cutting edge research and policy ideas going on. Uh, so let's go to COP26 and see what we can do to try and create the kind of robust governance frameworks that we need to try and harness all of this investment in nature-based solutions to climate change. So we've heard a lot about how the rural economy, agriculture, food and much more, affects and is affected by the climate emergency. Serving that rural economy, SIUC researches and develops new innovations, advises and facilitates the best use of technologies on farms and in businesses, and teaches and trains the next generation who will make that rural economy thrive. So it's no surprise that very many of the activities of SIUC colleagues in research, education and consultancy are focused on or touch on climate change. But with so much going on, sometimes it's hard to see the full picture. We can't see the climate positive wood for all the climate positive trees. Internally, there's a risk that we miss opportunities to make connections, to learn from each other and to exploit the synergies between projects. Externally, it can make it difficult for our customers and stakeholders to navigate to the expertise they're looking for. And we simply can't afford these inefficiencies. So for these reasons, we are forming the Climate Emergency Challenge Centre. It's a platform for collaboration to help us organise, execute and communicate our work on climate change. Work that helps drive the rural economy faster towards net zero emissions and helps that rural economy adapt to the challenges that climate change is bringing. So all of the projects and initiatives we've just talked through, along with many others, really constitute a, an innovation portfolio. We have projects and activities at various stages of development, stretching from the initial generation of ideas for new solutions coming from our more fundamental research programmes, through the testing of those ideas and their development into practical technologies and solutions for, for use, and to the support we give to farmers and rural businesses out there in the real world in adopting, adopting uh, these technologies. 
So running an innovation portfolio is a common approach used by many of the world's most successful companies, with the difference being that our bottom line is our contribution to the acceleration of the path towards net zero, rather than market share or financial return on investment. So by adopting an innovation approach to our work on climate change, our new and developing Climate Emergency Challenge Centre aims to sharpen the focus on delivery, on making sure that our work has outputs that have a real, tangible, measurable and quick impact on this massive and urgent global challenge. <laughs>